Our scripture this morning will be taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you might present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind, so you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You know, growing up, I don't know how many times I've heard this passage read, or I've read this passage, or I've heard this passage preached, but no matter how many times we hear this scripture, how difficult is it for us to challenge ourselves with this thought? To ask the question of ourself individually, am I allowing the world to conform, to change me into its image? Am I being conformed to the image of the world or am I allowing the experiences I witness around me, the challenges the people around me are going through, the sin and the wickedness and the evil around, am I allowing it to transform me into something greater? What a challenging thought that is. If we're honest with ourselves, it's probably more the case that we are being conformed to the world on a daily basis more so than transformed. If I'm being honest with myself, there are so many times where I catch myself thinking, I should not be doing this, I should not be saying this, I should not be acting this way, but I have been conformed to the image of those people around me instead of being transformed so that I can prove what is that good, what is that acceptable, what is that perfect will of God, Romans 12 and verse 2. Anybody ever heard the phrase, stick out like a sore thumb? Anybody ever heard that phrase? You know, you look at this phrase and you try to find the, the origins of this saying and it's really hard to discover what the origins are. It's just one of those statements that makes sense. Nobody knows who said it first. Nobody knows where it was said, under what context. But we all understand what it means to stick out like a sore thumb, perhaps because all of us have hit our thumb with a hammer and it swells up. Perhaps you need a Band-Aid on it, a bandage on it. And so when you wave or when you're going about your business, all you see when you're looking at that person is that bandage or, 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 or that swollen thumb, right? It sticks out like a sore thumb. Perhaps a better instance for us to understand this morning, each college football team has a spring football game. Alabama's is called the A-Day game. It's a free game for all the fans that can come and watch 
the practice of these two squads, for most teams, you leave and you win, right? Because you're playing against yourself. Some teams are so bad, they lose, right? But for Alabama, you go and that's this huge free game. It's very exciting. You're able to, I'm able to talk about Alabama today. Kyle's not here. Eat it, Kyle, right? So you're able to go and watch this Alabama game and and these, these squads practice against each other and no matter what year it is, no matter even when we were unsuccessful in the past, or even today when there is a packed out stadium on this spring game, if you ever realize they zoom out on all the stands and there's a sea of crimson, right? It's a sea of red and all there is is red except for this bright disgusting looking inside of a pumpkin looking orange and that orange dot they zoom in on them and it's a Tennessee fan out of nowhere in this sea of red at this only for Alabama fan game right only Alabama players are playing only Alabama people are supposed to be there there is a random Tennessee fan I don't know how many times you've experienced this, but I've sat by this man at an A-Day game before. No, not John. It was a random Tennessee fan. And I had to ask, what are you even doing here? You know, like, he's like, well, I'm married to an Alabama fan. Maybe it was John. I just didn't know who he was at the time. But that's what it means to stick out like a sore thumb, right? Sticking out like a sore thumb is, is obvious. All of us understand what it means. This Tennessee fan, he's, he's sticking out like a sore thumb. He's not supposed to be there. He's so obviously out of place in that scenario, right? We all understand what it means to stick out like a sore thumb, but the question this morning is, how many of us stick out like a sore thumb? when it comes to being a Christian. How many of us stick out, we stand out to our co-workers around us, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people that are around us? How many of us stick out like that sore thumb? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, what it takes to stick out and to stand out in our world today. To allow ourselves to be transformed like the verse talks about. We're going to be talking about how we can live the Christian life in the midst of all the chaos that we witness on a daily basis and still stick out and stand out. Being different, being distinct from the world around us. To do that, we're going to be looking at two different passages of Scripture, both in the book of 1 Samuel. They're going to be framing our discussion. You know, when you think of the idea of sticking out, you can stick out for a very great reason, and you can also stick out for a not-so-good reason, right? Perhaps you're thinking of people who stick out, they stand out, and they stand out for a great reason. Well, conversely, there are those who stick out and stand out for the absolute wrong reason. And we're going to be talking about two of these examples. One that sticks out for the right reason and one that sticks out for the wrong reason. 
And the first of our stories is going to be in chapter 9 of the book of 1 Samuel. As we are going to be looking at the anointing of Saul versus the anointing of David. And what it means to stick out in our day and age. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites are attempting to create a king in their own image. To create a king for themselves among their peers, among their contemporaries, who, is, who fits their image, who looks like them, who talks like them, who understands their life because they're done with this system of government like they had it. They're done with the judges. They don't believe the judges are effective anymore. They want to be just like all the other nations of the world. They don't want to go to the judges, especially these judges. Why? In chapter 8 we learn that Samuel's sons had become judges and they were not faithful to the Lord. It says that they were taking bribes. It says they were perverting justice. It says they did not follow the ways of their father, Samuel. And so in chapter 8, in verse 5, they begin to beg Samuel for a king. To give them a king just like all the other nations of the world. And in verse 5, it's, it says, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so this is what the Israelites wanted. They did not want to be under this judge system anymore. They wanted a king. And let's look what happens after that in verse 7. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And so God says, Samuel, don't take this personally. Samuel is obviously taking this personally. It, it displeased him greatly that they no longer wanted to be judged. They no longer wanted to have God as their true king anymore. So the, the, the saying displeased Samuel, it says. God says, Samuel, don't be displeased at this. This isn't about you. They are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are not forsaking you. They are rejecting me. They're forsaking me as their true king. He says, even though I brought them out of Egypt, even though I've carried them along the way, they are still rejecting me anyway. They're not doing this to you. They're doing it to me, Samuel. But God tells Samuel to warn the people one more time. He tells them you need to warn them one more time about what this change is going to mean for the daily life of the people of Israel. What different life they're going to have with an earthly king. And that's over the next few verses there after what we just read. But in verse 19, after all of that warning, after that stern and solemn warning, they still beg for a king. Verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. And so in verse 22, God tells Samuel, and notice the wording here for something later, 
In verse 22, he says, Heed their voice. Make them a king. At this point, God has realized that he has been rejected by his people. He has been forsaken. He has been abandoned. They no longer want him in charge. And so God says, heed their voice. Make them a king. It's almost as if God is washing his hands of this. He knows what is going to happen. He knows what is going to come. And he wants no part of it. Samuel, just do what they say. Make them a king. And so that's exactly what Samuel proceeds to do. God is fed up with their ungratefulness, their lack of faith. And so where I grew up, we said, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. That's what he's doing to the Israelites. They're making their bed, and they're going to have to lie in that bed that they've made. And chapter 9 picks up with our text on King Saul. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Now there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You see, this is already setting the stage, telling us about a man who stood out. A man who, who, who stuck out in front of all of his contemporaries. Why did he stick out? Why did he stand out above all the other people? Because he was literally taller than all the other people, right? He was a head and shoulders above all the other people in the land. It says he came from a mighty man of power. His father, Kish, was a mighty man of power. It calls Saul a choice son, a handsome son. And not only handsome, but more handsome than all the other men in Israel. And to top it all off, he's taller than everyone else too. And so obviously we see... Up here, the first thing we ever hear about Saul is that he stuck out. He stood out in front of all the other people around him. There was no choice to be made except for Saul to become king. It had to be Saul. No one in all the nation was taller than him. No one in all the nation was more handsome than him. And so surely those two qualifications qualify him to be king, right? Surely this makes him a, a, a great decision maker. Surely this makes him all the things that God would want, right? No. But because the people were choosing their king, they chose this man. Because he was beautiful to the eyes. Because he came from a powerful lineage, a powerful father. This guy is the obvious people's choice. And so that's exactly what happens. They choose Saul as king. And all the while, God is almost silently watching, allowing them to make this decision, knowing full well how it's going to turn out. And fast forward to chapter 10 and verse 17, where it is finally time for Samuel to introduce this new king to the people. It is time for Samuel to show the people this is the king, this is our representation to the world. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 17, it says, Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Israel, out of Egypt, delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. You see, God again, through the mouthpiece that he had in Samuel, he tells them, even though I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, even though I freed you from all of the adversities that you faced, even though I have, have taken all of your oppressors out of your way, even though you have no tribulation, you still want a king that's not me. Let's see how this works out. Verse 20. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul the son of Kish was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Isn't it interesting what we learn about Saul here, what we see happen here when it's finally time for God to, to anoint this man to, for, for the nation of Israel, God's people, to have one of their own become king. A man who was taller than all the people in the world, who, who, who was more handsome than all the people in the nation of Israel. It's time to announce him before the people, to bring him before the people. And the greatest climactic fail of all time, they can't find Saul. They can't find him. This, this man who's supposed to save Israel, who's supposed to be better than all the judges and all that have come before, it's, it's time for us to be just like all the other nations of the world. Where is Saul? You know, it's the irony here that when they can't find their earthly king, who do they call out to? They call out to God. They call out to God. They say, Lord, where is he? Can you hear God's voice? Obviously no. But can you imagine what God's voice was like when he goes, he's over there in the equipment. How ridiculous this must be to God, who is currently raining his voice down from the heavens, right? Booming with thunderous voice, you imagine, at least. And there he is, the king, this representation of his people, hidden in the equipment. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? But what happens? 
He says he, he's hidden among the equipment. He's not even big enough to be uh, distinguishable among this equipment. But there he is. If you want him, there he is. Oh, this is it. Let's run. We get him. We bring him before the people. Oh, he's taller than everyone. This is the one. And they're so excited. Samuel even says, this got to be him, right? Y'all got to agree. Look, look at the one the Lord has chosen. Long live the king, the people say. All the while, God's just standing there watching this happen. Saul was chosen to be their king. And they were so excited about a king who was taller than any of them, but not the God who was greater than any of them. Even after God had freed them, had delivered them, had, had given them all the freedom from those who oppressed them, had, they had no adversities, they had no tribulations, they chose Saul instead, a man who we know, with hindsight, was very flawed. But they chose him because he stood out. He stuck out among all the other people and men in the land. Now turn to chapter 16 where we're going to find God creating a king after his image. See, the first time man created a king after their own image, now God is going to create a king after his image. Because it did not take long to realize that beauty and height does not necessarily make the best king. It did not take long for the Israelites to realize this, for God to know this. He knew this in the first place. When man made king in their own image, it did not work out. But now it's time for God to create a king after his own image. In chapter 15 and verse 35, the last verse, it says, So Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You see, Saul, even though he was beautiful, even though he was tall, even though he stood out, in mankind's eyes, he wasn't the one that was going to lead God's people. In fact, he chose not to obey the word of the Lord in chapter 15. When God said to spare none, he spared King Agag. He spared some of the choice animals, right? And God rejects him as king over Israel. And so God regretted that he allowed, ever allowed Samuel, ever allowed the people of Israel to make for themselves a king. And he's about to change the ball game here in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, for you shall anoint for me the one I name to you. You know, this is almost a great I told you so moment for God here. 
God is saying, I told you so to Israel. I've, you thought that this man would be good. You thought that this king would be better than me. And here you already realize he is not. You went through with it. You replaced me and it didn't work out. Well, now it's my turn. It's time for me to get involved and I'm going to choose a king. Because I have rejected this king that the people chose. And instead, the verse says, I have provided for myself a king. Do you see the difference here in the, in, in, in the language used? When it was Saul's turn, when it was the people's turn, God said, Samuel, make them a king. Make for them a king for themselves among their people. This time with David, he says, I have provided for myself a king. Anoint for me the one I have chosen, he says. You see the difference. When it was Saul's turn, it was the people's choice, and now it's God's choice. This king was for God and his people. Verse 4 continues with saying, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. You see, Samuel is doing all that the Lord had said, but the Lord had not told Samuel which one was to be the king yet. He did not say which one he was going to anoint yet, which one he was going to provide for himself yet. There are a lot of sons of Jesse. And so what's about to happen is a 3,000 year, years ago runway model show of the best son of Jesse, right? He's going to parade them in front of Samuel and whoever is the tallest, whoever is the most beautiful, whoever presents themselves with the most pizzazz, surely this is the one. He's going to judge them accordingly, right? Well, he's a quarter inch shorter, so he's out. That's exactly what's about to happen. So he parades all of these brothers in front of Samuel, Jesse does. He, he, he parades all of his sons in front of Samuel to show him which one is going to be the king. Verse 6 continues, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for, the man, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So all of a sudden, Samuel is, is seeing these sons of Jesse. Jesse is sending his sons one by one. Here comes Eliab, perhaps the oldest. Eliab comes by and he goes, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this is the one. 
Nope. All right, well, you don't want Eliab. What about Abinadab? You won't believe Abinadab. Just look at how handsome Abinadab is. Surely this is the one. Nope. All right, well, it's getting a little weird now. What about Shema? You don't want my oldest two. What about Shema? Shema's a great guy. What do you think? Nope. What about these others? All these others, any of them? And you can see the confusion probably on Jesse's face when Samuel responds, the Lord has not chosen these. In the back of Jesse's mind, he's thinking, well, what, what does this mean, Samuel? What could this possibly mean? These are all, well, well, not all of my kids. There's one left, and he's over there taking care of the sheep. The runt of my litter, are you sure you want this one? Yep, bring him over here. Surely not this little youngest son, but that's exactly what happens in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Here God looks at all of these chosen sons of Jesse, the, uh, the eldest, perhaps the tallest, perhaps the most good looking. And he says, No, I want the runt. I want the one who is ruddy, the, the, the youngest, the one that has the bright eyes. He's good looking, but he's like a child compared to these other men. We're going to learn later that these other brothers were great warriors. He didn't want Eliab, he didn't want Abinadab, he didn't want Shema. He looks at David, he takes one look at David and he goes, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The text says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You see, David stuck out. David stood out among all of his other brothers, among all of the, the brothers that he had, the sons of Jesse. David stuck out, but for an entirely different reason than the reason Saul stuck out. David stuck out even though he wasn't the tallest, even though he wasn't the most handsome, even though he wasn't the eldest. Because at the end of the day, God knew that none of these were real qualifications for king. None of these human standards, these outward things mattered to God. What mattered to God was what actually stuck out in David, and that was his heart. Verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, David stuck out for the right reasons. David stood out when God looked at him out of all the other sons of Jesse because of the heart that he possessed. 
the heart that would one day be reckoned to the heart after God's own heart. Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised for them a David as a king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. You see, it did not matter to God how handsome David was, how tall David was, how strong he was, how old he was, because God knew David's heart. God knew David would be obedient to the word of the Lord, that he would do the things that God told him to do. And if he didn't, which he wouldn't at a certain time, when he did transgress, God knew that David would have the heart of repentance, a penitent heart that would get up off the ground and start over again. He knew that David would have the heart to go out and fight for his people, for his purpose, for his cause. God knew David's heart had the heart of humility needed to submit to him. David stuck out because of his heart. This morning, you see, it wasn't Saul's fault that he was tall, is it? Is it Saul's fault that he was tall? Is it Saul's fault that he was handsome? See, some of these things are out of our control, right? Is God upset at Saul because he's taller than everybody else, because he's more handsome than everybody else? Is that why God knew that this wouldn't be the king? No. God made Saul, right? God created Saul. He, he knew how tall he would be. He knew how handsome he would be. It wasn't his outward appearance that God was dissatisfied with. God was able to know Saul's heart and that it would not be the heart that he needed to lead the people. He couldn't control how tall he was or how handsome he was, but he could control his heart, and his heart was what was lacking. God knew the challenges this king would face, and he knew that, God, that Saul simply was not the man for the job. And so this morning, when we look at both of these men, Saul and David, on one hand, you have Saul who stood out. He stood out above all the others around him. And on the other hand, you have David who stood out. One of them stood out to man. One of them stood out to God. And only one of them were chosen and stood out for the right reasons. And that was David. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what is that good, what is that acceptable and perfect will of God. When we think about Saul, Saul was literally formed into the perfect image of worldly wisdom, was he not? Through no fault of his own when it comes to his outward appearance, he was formed into the image of the perfect man. And all the while, David was transformed into the perfect image of what God cares about, the heart. So the question this morning is, in what way do you stick out? 
In what way do you stick out in your daily life? Do you stand out? Do you stick out in front of all the other people in your life? Are you like Saul who is sticking out but yet it's for the wrong reasons? Or are you like David who sticks out because when God looks at you, he sees a heart after his own? Perhaps another question could be, if you were there, if we were able to get in a time capsule and go back to the time, and they were choosing a king, they were choosing a leader for the people, would the Israelites have chosen you, or would God have chosen you? And which one would you prefer? Maybe you're thinking this morning, I'm neither of these men. I'm not Saul. I don't stick out for the wrong reasons, perhaps. I, I don't stick out for, for, for bad things. I, I don't really do bad things. Well, on the other hand, I don't really do good things either. I, I, I'm not like David. I don't stick out for good things either. I'm somewhere here in the middle. How, how about I be Eliab, Ben? Can I not be Abinadab? I can just kind of fit in. I can just kind of blend in. I can... Not stick out, but not necessarily be bad. What if I just find somewhere in the middle? Because if I'm Eliab, if I'm Abinadab, I'm not going to be picked on 3,000 years later like we're doing with Saul this morning, right? Maybe I need to be right in the middle. I do not need to stick out. I do not need to uh, be different than everyone else around me. I want to blend in. I want to fit in. I have no need to be noticed by everyone around me. Perhaps I want to sneak by unnoticed. And because of that, when I'm on social media and I see Christians fighting against one of each other, tearing each other up, the sleeves are rolled back and the fists are punching. I'm joining in. I'm going to get my phone and I'm going to type as fast as I possibly can to get my punch in. I'm going to get my two cents in because I need to be just like these people around me. Even if it mars the name of the church, even if people who are not members of the church, when they look at these comments, they see these comments and go, I don't want any part of that. You know that, but you're going to, you're going to go, mm, 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 mm. I can't believe they said that. You're going to get them told. Because it's easier to fit in and blend in and be like just like everyone else around you than it is to stand out. And so I'm going to join in just like everyone else. And so when I hear my brothers and sisters gossiping about one another, when I hear them running each other down and piling all of these insults on one another, and I hear this gossip, and I hear these harsh things being said about my brother and my sister in Christ, you know what I'm going to do? Because I'm going to blend in, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to throw in a couple of things they might not know about that person. I'm going to add to the situation. I'm going to add to the gossip because it's easier for me to fit in with these people it's easier for me to blend in with these people than it is for me to not gossip. To not stick out. I just want to blend in. I don't want to be distinct. 
I don't want to be different. I don't want to be transformed. Instead, I am fine. I'm just fine with being conformed and being just like everyone else around me. If you'll allow me, we're going to go to a bunch of verses now that talk about what a Christian should be. I want to just ask ourselves, I want to ask myself, do I fit these words from God? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, Do not love the world, neither the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 1 and verse 32, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, Paul would say, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Lastly, Jesus would say in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, yet I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brethren, this morning when it comes to the choice of whether to stick out, or whether not to, we don't get to make that choice. When it comes to our life and our choices and our decisions, we are commanded to stick out. We are commanded to be that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that chosen people, 1 Peter 2, that are called to proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are commanded to become blameless and harmless. We are commanded to be harmless and blameless in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation in which we live. Not only that, we are to be lights to it. We are told that if we want to blend in with the world, we are becoming friends with the world. And when we become friends with the world, we are becoming enemies of God. We are told that the love of God cannot be in us if we love the world. 
And not only are we not supposed to love the world, we're not supposed to approve of the world and the things that they do. Romans 1 and verse 32, we read that. Not only are we not supposed to do those things, we're not supposed to support those things. And so when we're on social media and we press love and we react to the things that God hates, but because they're my friend, I need to show my support. I need to press like. I need to press love. I need to comment my support, even though it's something that God abhors. Do not love the world, neither the things of the world, God would say. We know Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. We know Paul says if we're Christians, we must suffer persecution. We know that Jesus said the world must hate us. But even with all of that knowledge, even with all of that understanding, we all find ourselves one foot in and one foot out. One foot in the world and one foot out of the world as if we can run this tightrope. As if we can teeter over this line of whether we are a Christian or not. You know what Jesus said about those people? Revelation 3, he told the church in Laodicea that if you are neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? Elijah, we're talking about him on Sundays lately, he would say in 1 Kings 18, how long will you falter between two opinions? Brethren, if we're going to live as Christ would have us, we're going to have to stick out. Each and every day of our lives, we're going to have to stick out among our co-workers, among our friends, among our family, among the world around us. And this morning you can either stick out for the wrong reasons, you can stick out for the right reasons, or you can stick out not at all. The choice is ours. What's it going to be? Paul would challenge us in Romans 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Or do you love the gospel and the power of salvation that it has given you so much that you're going to stick out every day you have a possibility and a chance to? Perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you realize you've been sticking out for the wrong reasons. You've been sticking out just like everyone else sticks out around you. You've been conformed to the world you doing the things that they do because they have changed you. They've changed your heart. They've changed who you used to be. This world has gotten you down so bad that you've become like it. 
there's room for you up here to get that right. Perhaps you're in the middle and you say, I don't stick out at all. I'm blending in. There's room for you up here as well. God wants to look at our hearts the same way he looked at David and go, there they are. As he looks at your heart during this song, what's he going to say? What will it be as together we stand and sing for your encouragement? My heart is weary, please help me, dear Lord, I stand in need.